Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we're going to explore the relationship between the erotic, the esoteric, and religion. With me is Professor Jeffrey Krempel, who is a professor of religion at Rice University and the author of several significant books, including Kali's Child, The Mystical and the Erotic in the Life and Teachings of Ramakrishna, Esalen, America and the Religion of No Religion, The Serpent's Gift, Gnostic Reflections on the Study of Religion, Authors of the Impossible, the Paranormal and the Sacred, Comparing Religions, Mutants and Mystics, Science Fiction, Superhero Comics and the Paranormal, and written with Whitley Strieber, The Supernatural, A New Vision of the Unexplained, and most recently, Secret Body, Erotic and Esoteric Currents in the History of Religion. Once again, this is an interview conducted via Skype, so I'll switch over now to the Skype video. Welcome, Jeff. It's a uh, pleasure to be with you. Yeah, and likewise, we've got two Jeffs here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll remember which one I am. Okay, I'm not sure I will. Let's let's go ahead anyway. Uh, okay, well, you've written this magnificent book, uh, "Secret Body," which is an English translation of the phrase "corpus mysticum," and in it, you're you're talking about your whole career as a scholar of the history of religion and uh, how it seems so important to you to focus on two topics that are probably the most taboo in academia, the paranormal and the erotic. Right, right. So, yeah, I, I spent the first really 25 years of my um, my search, actually, and my career thinking about the relationship between mysticism and eroticism. So that's that was really all I did for a quarter of a century. And then I really, I felt like I had answered those questions, at least to my own satisfaction. And I moved into other questions, which really revolved around the relationship between mind and matter mm -hmm. and, and looking at paranormal phenomena as guideposts or, or suggestions about how to think about that. And so secret body, you know, which comes really you know, 13 years later, uh, is a way of trying to put those two halves of my thought together. And, you know, I think sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But uh, that, that's really what the book was about, is mm -hmm. trying trying to make sense of myself, but also trying to relate these two halves of my, my obsessions. Well, it, it strikes me that not only are these two halves, the esoteric and or paranormal and the erotic, uh, both uh, highly taboo, particularly in academia, but they, to me, they represent uh, 
opposite poles of, of some sort of a spectrum. On the one hand, you have the, the carnal, and on the other hand, you have the very uh, spiritual, or the idea of at least consciousness separate from the body. Yeah. Yeah, so those, so the, in the first half of my work, I'm really trying to look at the relationship between sexual experience and mystical experience, mm -hmm. which are those two halves again. And I'm essentially arguing they're not actually separate. And I know lots of people want to read the sexual language metaphorically, but it actually doesn't work if you really dig down deep enough. It's, it's pretty obvious uh, uh, in close case studies that these aren't just metaphors. Mm -hmm. um, and with the paranormal stuff, you know, people want to just frame it as some kind of fantasy or some kind of projection but I also think that's a mistake and that it's, it really involves physical events and it really involves mental states. And the fact that that just completely throws our categories into disarray is precisely why it interests me. I, I, I think that's just fascinating and I'm drawn to those. I'm drawn to that kind of confusion. Your first exposure to uh, religious mysticism and its erotic overtones came when you were a seminary student. Uh, I guess that would be uh, right out of high school. Right. That was between 1981 and 1985. And uh, I would have been 18 when I entered and 22 when I left. Um, so yeah, that was my, that was my college experience. And that, it really was my introduction to these questions in a kind of very embodied uh, and um, suffering way, frankly. Mm -hmm. I, w I was anorexic. I was deeply anorexic. Uh, and I was also living in a religious community that over a number of years I came to understand is primarily a, a gay community, not, not in any um, explicit or, or expressed way, but in a kind of sublimated spiritual way. And uh, I myself was not gay, um, but I was deeply confused <laughs> sexually. Uh, and the anorexia was a part of that. And so me working through all of that with actually a psychoanalyst who was a monk as well was really the origins of, of my thinking along these lines. So you had an early exposure to Freud. I did. Freud uh, saved my life, mm -hmm. literally, and I don't mean that metaphorically either. I think I would be—I think I would have died in my mid twenties of, of starvation or some, you know, something coming out of the anorexia if uh, Freud and psychoanalysis wouldn't have turned that around. You, in effect, cured yourself of anorexia. That's, that's faithful to Freud too. Yeah. Uh -huh. I think that's, I think that's fair. Um, yeah, it wasn't just me though. I don't, I don't think I could have done that without the analyst, but you're right. That's how, that's how psychoanalysis works. Yeah. And, and Freud had a lot of ideas both about the erotic and about the esoteric and, and about mysticism. Right. Freud was actually fascinated by religion in general and was much more sympathetic to mysticism than people realize. Um, one of my uh, colleagues here at Rice is Bill Parsons, who really is the guy who showed us that Freud was uh, deeply, deeply impacted by this French writer named Romain Roland. Uh, and Roland was himself 
an open mystic, um, had been raised Catholic, had really left Catholicism, and had developed a kind of worldview, I think, that we would now call spiritual but not religious, but himself was deeply mystically inclined. And he wrote Freud after Freud wrote The Future of an Illusion and was a big fan of Freud, and they became very, very close. Uh, and Roland tried to teach Freud about the mystical, and of course Freud taught Roland about uh, the, the human psyche, and, and they, they were dear, dear friends. Freud mm-hmm. adored him and uh, was very humble about what he knew and didn't know mm-hmm. about mystical experience. And yet people today think of uh, Freudian mysticism as uh, uh, the notion of a, a return to the oceanic state of uh, the infant as sort of a, a regression, not a, not a state of transcendence. Well, that was part of what Freud thought. I mean, that's fair to that part of Freud. That, that certainly is fair. But there was this whole other part to Freud that he acknowledged that Roland had a set of experiences that he didn't have. Mm-hmm. And that, and as he said, I don't have ears for that kind of music. But he acknowledged that other people do. Um, so I think, I think Freud is more complicated. I don't want to portray him as some kind of hero of, of the mystical. He wasn't. But, um, that's also not why he saved me, by the way. You know, mm-hmm. I think, I think, I think with all great thinkers, we can acknowledge their greatness without signing our names to the absolute truth of everything they said and thought, which is just silly. It's mm-hmm. just silly. Uh, and, and I think Freud is one of those people who just so shaped our modern world and, and in such powerful ways that, that we are foolish to, to, to ignore that. Mm-hmm. Well, after your uh, time at the seminary, you, became a scholar, and you began exploring uh, the uh, tantric tradition of India, and in particular, the life of the 19th century Hindu saint Ramakrishna. Right. So when I came out of the seminary, I I had essentially left the religious life really on the grounds that I could not find any resources for a, a male heterosexual mystical life. In other words, there was no way to be a straight guy and be a Catholic mystic because the Catholic mystic is always called to marry Christ, which is a very homoerotic thing if you happen to be a man. Yeah. Uh, I, and, I know in your book you have a quote from a bumper sticker that says, real men love Jesus. Yeah, and it, of course they didn't intend it the way I intend that, but that's kind of the, the dilemma of, of male heterosexuality, in, at least in Catholicism. And so I was, was interested in Hinduism and, and Buddhism because there are all these goddesses, mm-hmm. and uh, which seemed like uh, a real resource for such a heterosexual mystical life. And so that's what took me to graduate school, and, and that's why I wrote that dissertation in first book, which was on the life of Ramakrishna, mm-hmm. who... It turned out not to be straight at all, uh, and that was sort of the irony of the project. Was I went looking for a straight mystic and found another uh, homoerotic mystic, like I had seen, uh, you know, a dozen times over in my own tradition. Mm-hmm. Well, as I recall, he was rather well known for uh, dressing in women's clothing. Well, he he would take on he he didn't cross-dress in that sense that we think of today, but he took on the personalities or bhavas of 
various female figures from Hindu mythology in order to ecstatically love Krishna, for example. So he definitely had this transgendering going on that that but but that had a a very established place in in hindu hindu uh, religion and spirituality um and so i was trying to tease all of that out in the book and mm-hmm. in what sense is this traditional hinduism in what sense does this depend on a certain sexual orientation and can we even can we even tease those things apart at the end of the day Mm-hmm. Well, you know, before we go too much further, it'd probably be useful for some of our viewers who are not familiar with Ramakrishna to talk about his place in the history of religion. Well, so he was, he lived from 1836 to 1886. He was living in Calcutta of the time, which was sort of the center of British colonialism. It was one of the the focal points where uh, Indian intellectuals were engaging uh, British colonialists and intellectuals. And one of the things that was coming out of that was a refashioning of what would become modern Hinduism. And his main disciple was a young man uh, named Narendra, uh, who became uh, Swami Vivekananda, um, particularly when he came to uh, the U.S., uh, and spoke at the World Parliament of Religions in uh, 1893. So, and it was really Vivekananda who, in some sense, was the first kind of super missionary from Hinduism to Western culture and uh, was was really um, uh, talking and writing about uh, uh, Vedanta, a kind of philosophical form of Hinduism that, that emphasizes non-dualism. And so that's, that's very much a part of how Hinduism was received, uh, particularly in the States in the late the late 19th and early 20th century. So Ramakrishna was very, very, very influential through Vivekananda, but also then through a collection of, of um, books that were translated in 1942 as the Gospel of, of, of Sri Ramakrishna, which is really how most people encountered him in the in the counterculture, for example. Mm-hmm. I, I remember uh, when I first moved to California, people were into the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, and I seem to recall uh, some of my friends saying, and he smoked hashish. And he what? Smoked hashish. Oh, <laughs> I don't know about that, actually. Uh yeah, that could be some moral folklore <laughs> developing. I mean, there's certainly lots of hashish in India, no question about that. But I don't, I don't actually recall that that piece. Mm-hmm. Well, while you were in India, uh, working on uh, the the study of the tantric traditions there and and Ramakrishna, you yourself had a very profound experience. Right. So, so I. I was working on a form of Hinduism called Shakta Tantra. And this is a tantric tradition, um, uh, very, very influential in what's going on. It focuses around the goddess Kali and it involves this, um, the presence of something called Shakti, mm-hmm. which is a kind of mystical uh, energy that's also conscious. Um, and, uh, it was the fall of uh, 1989, and it was during a, a festival called Kali Puja, which is a series of days dedicated to the worship of Kali. Um, and during that festival, um, I woke up one morning, uh, and I couldn't move. Um, I was paralyzed. 
Um, and while I was trying to figure out what had happened, this, this energy uh, came out of me or came out of the room or came out of somewhere and started to engage me in all of these really profound ways and that I thought I was being electrocuted, actually. I thought I was dying, maybe having a heart attack. It wasn't clear. Um, and then at one point, these energies just, they sort of imploded right into the heart region. And I had this kind of classic out-of-body experience and um, then struggled for some time to try to get back into my body. And when I got back into the body, I, I felt this, well, this Shakti. I felt this this conscious energy that was... Now, kind of coursing through me. Um, and that was really the inspiration for the dissertation in the book. I mean, it's called Kali's Child because of that experience of being invaded or, or possessed or, or radiated by, by the goddess's Shakti. Mm-hmm. Now, I, this experience is now happened several decades ago. It obviously still seems to be with you in many ways. Well, so what, of course, after it happened, well, for years after it happened, I thought that the whole point of it was to somehow arrive at some correct interpretation of it, um, or to get it back. Mm-hmm. And, um, I wrote book after book after book trying to figure out what this thing was or this presence was until, you know, a few years ago, I, I came to the conclusion that the point of that event was actually all the books that I wrote, that it wasn't, there was no single interpretation of it. It had no single meaning that it was designed to be a kind of paradox and that it was designed to set me on all of these paths that I later went down. So I see it now as, as sort of infinitely meaningful and, and not, not placeable, mm-hmm. not definable in any clear or final sense. And I also don't, I don't try to re, um, I, I've failed completely <laughs> to, to get it back. I mean, I don't think I was capable of causing it in the first place, but I certainly can't get it back. So I've let go of that as well. Um, and I think I'm sort of at peace with it at the moment. It does strike me that you're talking about something like a personal relationship with a uh, divine form of the feminine. Uh, certainly in that, in that case, absolutely. Yeah. That's, and remember I was in search of a heterosexual mysticism. So yeah. you need, you need a divine feminine, right? Yeah. <laughs> to, to do that. So I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. And later on in your career, you co-authored this book with Whitley Strieber on the supernatural. And what you emphasize, I think, is that Whitley's experience with what he called the visitors also resonated with this idea of a personal relationship with uh, something akin to the divine feminine. Well, not only that, I mean, when I listen to Whitley and when I look at the artwork that comes out of that. I mean, I see Hindu goddesses, you know, I see, I see Tantra, you know, mm-hmm. now, of course it's not because there's no American or Western category for any of that. But basically you have almond eyed female deities, um, engaging 
people in sexual and spiritual transformation. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much what <laughs> Shakti Tantra is in India, you know. So I, I'm not saying they're the same thing at all, but they're, they clearly share, there's some, there's something shared there mm-hmm. that I, I, I can't quite figure out. Well, well, for example, uh, Whitley describes the visitors in, sometimes as being very enticing and, and erotic, and at other times being very fierce, performing unwelcomed surgical operations on him. And uh, then on the other hand, you have all these images of Kali holding knives and swords and bloody heads and uh, in a very, very, in fact, uh, surrealistic, fierce aspect. Oh, yeah. I mean... You know, if you only have read about Tantra in books, you are not prepared to encounter it in India. You know, particularly go into a cremation ground and, and, you know, meet practicing Tantrikas who are, you know, there with skulls and candles and, and it's a place of literally burning bodies. I mean, this, this is not, um, this is not something, um, uh, simple. Um, and, but you know, Jeff, I when I was when I was trained in the study of religion in Chicago in the late eighties and nineties, what what we meant by the sacred, um, which comes out of people like Rudolf Otto and others, is not the good. You know, the the sacred is is about power, mm-hmm. and the human response to the sacred historically, where really wherever you look, from the Bible to you know, modern India is one of fascination and terror. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, you don't you don't just walk up to God and shake His hand in the Bible. If if you see God or you touch God, you're dead. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is not this is not a force of pure benevolence. This is a force of 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 certainly beauty and power and redemption, but also terror and violence and death if you get too close and so for me that what i what i saw in india was not was not completely foreign at all i mean it was quite faithful to this larger global encounter with the sacred Mm -hmm. and i suppose one might say there is a sense that the uh, mainstream religious institutions the churches and synagogues and even the mosques i suppose one and temples uh serves as as a way of sheltering the average person from from that awesome terrible uh, thing we call god right so you know one of the things that i often try to describe in my work is that you know a temple particularly a temple that that claims to house the divine is you know more like a nuclear reactor than anything it's it's designed to protect the community from the sacred but also to get a little of that sacred juice and you know <laughs> uh, put it into the power lines for, uh-huh. for the community so it's it's always this sort of both and it's like uh, you know, religious traditions um, take this essentially this nuclear reaction, and they they press it down into this little wire or this little source of energy that can be used for for domestic or daily purposes. But you don't want to you don't want to walk into the reactor. You're you're you know you're toast if you do that. Yeah. So. 
Well, you do argue, I think, uh, especially for your colleagues uh, who are historians of, of religion, such as yourself, that they have to uh, appreciate the uh, potential of the reactor, not just the nine volt battery. Right, right. Because you can see, you can see those encounters as well. I mean, I think these historical revelations are, you know, people getting closer to the reactor, essentially. Mm-hmm. And you're suggesting that one way that uh, mainstream scholars can uh, better understand what religion is all about is to take the 150-year history of paranormal research seriously instead of sweeping it under the rug as they tend to do. Right. So I, you know, so what? There's a bigger, there's a little kind of a backstory here. When I, I was writing a history of the human potential movement and in about 205, 206, finishing it up, and uh, became this this book on Esalen, this community down in Big Sur. And while I was finishing that, I was talking to all these people who were telling me all of these incredible stories of things that were just completely unbelievable to me. But but I trusted the people, and, and I I knew them personally. And I was just deeply puzzled by why my colleagues uh, and I really had no way of even thinking about these things. You know, we, we had talked about them as legends or as folklore or as exaggerations or whatever, but we never really took them seriously. And um, so I, I wrote a history of, of the paranormal called authors of the impossible. Mm-hmm. And, and it was my, it was sort of, it was therapy for me trying to work through why, why we had denied all this. And, Essentially, what I found is that when the field was founded in the 19th century, its founders were all fascinated by these things. Mm -hmm. And then over the 20th century, they gradually get taken off the table. And the more they get taken off the table, the more, of course, on the table that we can explain. Um, So (laughs) we get to a point where, you know, we're saying, well, we understand everything about religion. It all makes good rational sense. Um, and of course it makes good rational sense because we've taken off everything off the table we can't explain. <laughs> and so what I've been trying to do over the last 10 years is put all that crazy stuff back on the table and mm-hmm. say, okay, folks, now what? Yeah. And, and of course we can't explain this. Um, but I think what's so useful, this is what you were talking about is if we get up close to that stuff in the present through people like Whitley or or Elizabeth Crone, this woman I just finished this other book with, if we get up really close to it, or if we take our own anomalous experiences seriously, we can then use those contacts and use those experiences to better understand the historical materials Mm -hmm. that actually now don't look so unbelievable. You know? They, They might still be exaggerated, and they're shaped, and they're formed and domesticated, of course, but at at the origin of them, I think we can often find the same sorts of experiences that are all around us today in people reporting things like near-death experiences mm-hmm. and apparitions of dead loved ones yeah. and UFO encounters and, you know, you name it. It's, it's all here in the present, just as it was in the past. Um, and we can use the present to understand the past and vice versa, frankly. We can use the past to understand the present. 
There are many scholars these days who are exploring the paranormal, and I think I would count you among them, who are saying we really have to consider uh, an idealistic metaphysics, a metaphysics that places consciousness first uh, rather than a reductionistic, materialistic metaphysics. And uh, in, in your writing, you seem to s- suggest that metaphysical materialism is is really the basis of uh, the whole academic study of religion. Yeah. So and this is, again, at the kind of the core of my critique. I I think that the metaphysics that most academics operate with is some combination of Marxism and materialism. Mm. And by that, I mean, they think that all human experience is somehow a product of economics and politics and matter, mm-hmm. you know, and that's it. Um, and so then that then determines what they're willing to look at, of mm-hmm. course. And that's how you get the table that I was talking about earlier, where everything makes sense because we've just controlled what we put on that table. And I think when you look at extreme religious experiences, not not ordinary, not I'm not talking about going to church or the temple or the synagogue yeah. one day yeah. a week. I'm talking about I'm talking about people who are receiving revelations or who are being abducted or whatever the language is. If we look at those experiences, it's very very hard. I think it's impossible actually to make sense of them with just a materialist metaphysic. Mm-hmm. I think we need something that certainly embraces what materialism gives us, but also can move beyond it. And so, you know, that's what I've been trying to do. Um, idealism, of course, is uh, the other extreme. And and I know people, I mean, I deeply admire people who are idealists, and and they may be right. Um, but I, I wouldn't describe myself as an idealist, Jeffrey. Okay. I, um, I am, um, you know, I, I, if we want to get really technical, I'm, I'm a dual aspect monist, um, which is essentially a system that says that reality itself is neither mental nor material. It's, it participates in both of those things. But when it, when it comes up into a human being like you or me and, and it comes into our experience, it splits off into a material dimension and a mental dimension, mm-hmm. but that those two dimensions are actually the same thing that is being split off. Uh, so it's this, it's, it's ontologically one, but it's epistemologically two. And, uh, I think that's, that's a closer to where I'm at at mm-hmm. the moment anyway. And so, but that helps me explain paranormal experiences because paranormal experiences always have this physical dimension in the environment that corresponds perfectly or almost perfectly to some mental state. And so for me that if they've split off of the common, you know, super reality, that's exactly what you'd expect to see. Hmm. And of course that is what you see if you take these things seriously. Well, let, let's talk for a moment about um, deities. Okay. We, we've been discussing Shakti and, and Kali and, uh, the relationship of, of the divine feminine to the idea of masculine heterosexual mysticism. Uh, they, they seem to be quite natural. I know ever since I was a child, I thought it would be much easier to have a relationship with a female deity than a male. Uh, right. Uh, and, 
Whitley Strieber is an interesting figure because he now is, is writing about experiences that go back for decades in which he has had encounters. And it's still not clear to me whether these, to the extent to which you could call these encounters physical or, um, to the extent in which they, they might be metaphysical or even fantasy. But one thing is very clear in Whitley's case. He's had an enormous impact. People all over the world now identify these large almond eyes uh, with aliens. And about six months ago, I had the privilege of interviewing a fellow who was a student of yours, Jason Giorgiani, and we were talking about Whitley. And he said, this man is imbued with Shakti power, the way he's been able to change the thinking of uh, the intelligent or the Western world, people who read his books, which are now millions of, of, of people, into thinking about uh, alien beings as, as, as real, that wh- whatever these beings are, Whitley himself is an instrument of Shakti. Right. So... I wouldn't disagree with that. I mean, that's a mythical way of talking about Whitley, of course, but I I think these experiences lend themselves uh, almost by force or willy-nilly to to mythical ways of speaking. I mean, the way I think of Whitley, um, whom I know very well um, and admire profoundly, is he, you know, he's a shaman, essentially. Um, He's in contact with other dimensions of reality that the rest of us are not i'm certainly not but that he lives in a culture that doesn't recognize shamanism mm. so he's in a he's in a real dilemma actually he he's a profoundly gifted shaman in a culture that has no shamans and so he he tends to be seen as a, a crank or or as someone who's making this up you know this is what his critics would say mm. and and he's not He's not making this up. These things really happen to him. And he's trying <clears throat> his best to to express to us what he is experiencing. And he does that both through fiction and nonfiction. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, he he's really working against the grain of, of this of this kind of scientific culture we all live in. Um so that that's how I would mm-hmm. understand someone like Willie well, Strieber. It's been over half a century now since Carl Jung wrote his book on flying saucers in which he suggested that the flying saucer phenomena is uh, really we're witnessing the birth of, of a religious movement. And I think you've taken it that way. Yeah. So I just I just taught Jung's book, actually. Um, yeah, it's, the book's called Flying Saucers, A Myth of Things Seen in the Sky is, is the actual title. And Jung, well, this is right at the end of Jung's life. I think he came out in 58 or so with this book. And what's so interesting about the book is it it's very prescient in a lot of ways. Um, and he can't decide whether the flying saucer phenomena is a kind of projected fantasy and is based on some kind of archetypal um, process or whether these are actual ships mm-hmm. and technology. And and he sort of he sort of decides that 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 indecision is the point of the phenomena, and that what what the UFO phenomena really signals is the end of one era, which has a kind of apocalyptic function, 
and the beginning of another. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's something to that, actually. Um, I, I'm, I'm not an apocalyptic thinker, but I think the sense of one one great Western mythology ending and another one beginning is, is essentially true. Um, and I think that was really behind a lot of Jung's thinking, you know, and a lot of his thought, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, um, may, many other great thinkers have suggested as much. Uh, yeah. I've been very influenced by the writings of Pitarum Sorokin at, at Harvard, who suggested that we're witnessing the uh, end of, of an age that started in the Renaissance 500 years ago, and uh, it sort of played itself out, and something new is trying to be born, but uh, in the meantime, things are going to be very chaotic. Yeah. Yeah, things don't end nicely, usually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I know we're just scratching the surface, however. Uh, I wonder if it's possible to push a, a little deeper. For example, uh, I get the impression from your recent book that uh, what is separating us from uh, access to that that part of ourselves, which is, is more in uh, attuned to paranormal or esoteric realities is, is we become so heavily acculturated and, and uh, we, we can break through that uh, acculturation. It happens in moments of extreme stress or it can happen in moments of extreme ecstasy. And that's where I think the erotic comes in. Right. So what I'm Jeffrey, I'm not sure what you're asking there. I, I <laughs> it's not a question, actually. Yeah. It's it's sort of like a jazz riff, and now it's your turn to play the trombone. <laughs> okay. So so yeah, I will riff. I can, I can play the trombone. Um you know, I often have this conversation that goes like this. I you know, a lot of a lot of religious practice and a lot of assumptions around spirituality assume that you know the goal of life is moving to the suburbs and having two and a half kids and a golden retriever and you know having a nice retirement account and all of those are good things all of which of course i want as well maybe not the two and a half kid the half kid is, a, is <laughs> disturbing um but um but actually when you look at these experiencers the great experience almost never happens in a state of health mm-hmm. or normality or 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 uh, high social functioning. It usually takes some kind of trauma or some kind of incursion or some kind of breakthrough, and uh, and so I think we have to be um, we have to stop thinking that all truth and all good things come through normality. I don't think that's true. And so when someone says to me, oh, you know, such and such an abduction case must be related to some kind of uh, psychopathology or illness or something, my response is, well, duh, of course, often it is, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no, there's no, I think of the human being as a kind of filter, and that what the body and the brain does when it's healthy is it keeps out most of reality. But if you operate with that model, 
you have to somehow compromise or shut down the filter for the rest of reality to get in. Mm -hmm. And this is why, you know, something like an erotic experience, an orgasm or a psychedelic substance or a car wreck or a lightning strike, you know, something really that breaks you open is what lets in the cosmos, right? Um, so I'm not encouraging them that. I'm not, I'm not trying to tell people to go, you know, drive their Toyota into, into oak trees or something. But I'm just saying, look, life is going to traumatize us anyway. But let's look for these incursions of, of the transcendence, of the transcendent in these moments. And let's not pre keep pretending that the transcendent is somehow the normal mm -hmm. or the everyday because it's not. It's just not. Like I get really upset. I don't get upset. I get I get pissed when <laughs> when people say, "Oh, the paranormal is normal." I'm like, "No, it's not." Have you ever had a paranormal experience? It's freaking eerie. It is weird. Have you ever talked to someone who has had one? They're, they're terrified. It is not the normal. Stop talking like that. You know, so this is kind of what I'm trying to get at is mm -hmm. we, if we can have bigger imaginations and bigger hearts and not keep pretending that God or the transcendent or whatever our language is, is compatible with our everyday ordinary functioning, I think we'll be much better off actually. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and we'll understand ourselves better. Well, that seems to be the key point. It's it's about understanding ourselves because I think at the end of the day, uh, you maintain, and I would agree if it, well, whether you maintain this or not, I would agree. But but the <laughs> the the point you're saying is that this awesome, terrifying experience of God is also an experience of ourselves. Yes, I am saying that. I have never encountered a religious experience that was not the religious experience of a human being ever so to me that the most the most accurate thing you can say about god or or any religious deity or state is that it is somehow related to what we call the human being and the human being is not what we think it is. I think that's the flip side here, yeah. is that we are way weirder than we put on. You know, we're, you know, we're, we're like, we're, we're all Superman or Superwoman, and we just think we're Clark Kent, you know, um, but we're not, or we are, we're both of those things. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, this is sort of the beginning of our conversation. Yeah. That's sort of my point is, no, actually, we're both, um, but usually we're just aware of the ordinary self, you know, mm -hmm. of the ego. But sometimes that that gets, you know, Superman shows up. Mm -hmm. And if it shows up at the right time and place, it, it can change your life. Totally, completely, and instantly. Yeah. This is a, you know, not to press a book, but we just, I just finished this book. It's called Changed in a Flash. I wrote it with Elizabeth Crone. And that's the whole point of the book is, uh, actually, <laughs> you can be changed just like that you know, in an instant. It's, she had a near-death experience, I believe. 
takes a lightning strike in this case. <laughs> Yeah. I don't. I don't. Again, encourage, but um, uh, you know, it happened to Elizabeth, mm-hmm. and um, it, it happens to people all the time. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, Jeffrey Kreipel, it's been a real pleasure having this conversation with you. Uh, I'm delighted to be able to share it with our viewers, and I look forward to future uh, opportunities to do this again. Great. I'm ha- happy to happy to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. 